Hello everyone, it's Anthony Chadwick from the Webinar Vet, welcoming you to another episode of Vet Chat. I am super thrilled to have David Hetherington on as our guest today. Uh, I first met David on a webinar, not one of our own, but uh, for another association that we're talking all about, links. David is um, the author of a beautiful book about links, which I enjoyed. He even signed the copy for me. I gave it to my daughter as a present. And it's a fabulous book all about the possibilities of introducing the links back into the UK. Um, I'm going to let David introduce himself with some more background of what you've been up to uh, with I think your PhD was on the introduction of links into the UK. I know it's not happened. We'll no doubt get onto that later on. But David, first of all, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, yeah, love to hear a little intro from you. Thanks, Anthony. And uh, yeah, thanks very much for, for inviting me along. So yeah, my, my day job is I work for the Cairngorms National Park Authority as their woodland advisor, although um, Part of my time at the National Park, I sit on the project management group of a wildcat conservation project called Saving Wildcats. So I, I, I am still uh, slightly involved in the animal side of things in my day job. Um, outside that, I sit uh, on the board of a rewilding charity called Trees for Life, which has been active in the Highlands for the last 30 years or so. Uh, mainly, as the, the name would suggest, in sort of woodland expansion, woodland creation, um, tree planting activities. Although in the last few years, they've started to move much more into the animal side of things as well, and have been involved, for example, in uh, red squirrel reintroductions on the west coast of Scotland. Uh, and they've been involved in discussions about beaver reintroductions as well. And then, as you suggest, Anthony, my, in my spare time, I'm also quite involved in promoting what I would regard as kind of fact-based discussions about uh, the subject of uh, links reintroduction and the potential for restoring links uh, to the UK, particularly here in Scotland. And I did my PhD at the University of Aberdeen a number of years ago now looking at the, the feasibility of links reintroduction in Scotland. And I've, I guess I continue to, to sort of um, get involved in that discussion. Um, I, I kind of built up a network of contacts right across Europe where I think it's been really important to look at how links interact with people and their uh, economic activities and, and indeed other wildlife across similarly uh, human modified landscapes and that um, allowed me to uh, publish the book the links in us uh, more recently with a very talented french photographer called laurent gelin uh, it was a real honor to work with him because he's got a fantastic portfolio of images of wild links from the mountains of Switzerland. So a combination of my words and his uh, photographs uh, and some really nice uh, production from the publishers has resulted in what I hope is a, a really nice but informative uh, and balanced book. So that's that's what I do in a nutshell. If I could sum it up rather crudely, it's trees and cats. David, and the, and the book, as I mentioned, was fabulous. And I, I unashamedly uh, feel happy to plug it for any of the vets or, or, or nurses or anybody listening in. It is a very, very worthwhile early Christmas present. Uh, planning early in April for Christmas or a birthday as I did for my daughter. Um, and I know, David, we'll, we'll get a link on the end so people can actually click on uh, to wherever so that they can they can buy a copy. And you may even sign a few would you sign a few for us if people came forward and wanted to buy the book? 
Yeah, yeah, they can they can buy the book online or they can get in contact with me either uh, on LinkedIn, um, send me a message on that, or they can drop me an email and I'll be happy to sort out uh, personalised copies, signed copies uh, for the same price as they're available online. So yeah, that's all doable. That's brilliant. I I think the book is really interesting because obviously, um, you know, as part of rewilding, whether bringing Beaver back into the country as has already happened, some of sort of slightly illegally, most of them on license, um, or bringing the links in. There's always two sides to every story. I, I know the white-tailed seagulls, um, some people would see them as I would a beautiful bird of prey. Other people see them as, you know, obviously killing livestock. And it, it's getting that story that there are obviously always some disadvantages but there's lots of advantages as well i think that's really what the book was showing i was particularly fascinated by the mention of you know how, how many sheep they kill that's obviously a really significant thing for for farmers to consider and in fact one of the main countries where the sheep kill was quite high was norway because of course the sheep live in the forest there don't they because yeah. lynx are really a an animal that catches its prey in in wooded areas, isn't it, rather than on farmland? Yeah, they're an ambush hunter. Um, and so they need cover to launch a surprise attack. So they need to get close enough. And the whole thing needs to be over in a matter of meters and a matter of seconds. And what I've found is, you know, people are not familiar with the lynx and, and why on earth should they be? This is an animal that hasn't lived in this country for centuries it's got a pretty low cultural profile you know we, we all know about you know uh the big bad wolf and it you know dressed up as your granny and all this sort of stuff and then they've got the three bears get a bit grumpy about porridge and uh, but we've got no cultural references to, to links you know no morality tales fairy tales they're very rarely depicted on tv and so people plug the knowledge gaps with assumptions and because links and wolves are frequently talked about in the same sentence particularly when it comes to you know, the discussions of rewilding and reintroductions, people, I think, start to describe how they think a lynx behaves and what they're indirectly describing is a wolf or perhaps even a, a fox. And of course, lynx and wolves are very different animals. Um, ecologically, they're different. Behaviorally, they're different. The relationship with people is very different. And so people just assume that, well, why on earth is a lynx going to go and chase a fast deer when it can just chase a, a slow, stupid sheep? And they'll just assume that the minute they're, they're carted into this country, they'll run around ripping up sheep flocks. Um, and of course, there's an element of, of truth to this. There is a risk to some sheep that lynx can can kill them. And it does happen. I, you know, let's not beat around the bush. Lynx can kill sheep. They do do it. Uh, and it would almost certainly happen here. Uh, but to suggest that they would completely ignore the wild play and go after nothing but sheep, of course, is, is very far from the truth uh, as well. And of course, things like this are really quite nuanced. Uh, and of course, these days, discussions tend not to be very nuanced. They're quickly quite um, polarized and oversimplified. So the relationship between lynx and sheep is not a straightforward one. It, there is not a single uh, relationship between lynx and sheep. There are several different types of relationship between lynx and sheep, and so much depends on uh, how we graze sheep in a landscape. So, for example, in Romania, where people have always lived alongside large carnivores, lynx, wolves, bears, the shepherds there have never lost the ability to live alongside them. And it's all about really quite intensive shepherding. And it's largely the wolves and the bears that people get worried about. But of course, the steps they take to protect their sheep from wolves and bears means that there's hardly any losses at all. 
uh, to links. So there's 24-7 shepherding, there's the protection with livestock guarding dogs, there's corralling the sheep at nighttime. So we used to do that sort of stuff here and in other parts of Western Europe. But of course, it's incredibly labor intensive. And, and as soon as we got rid of the large carnivores, we got rid of that uh, type of shepherding. So then um, when you get to Western Europe, where we lost the large carnivores, we gave up on that um, and everything was fine. We could be lazy, if you like, you know, we didn't have to worry about our livestock. We put them out in the pasture and we'll keep an eye on them every sort of few weeks or so. Nothing much bad is going to happen to them. But then, of course, in more uh, more recent times, as we, we got our, our society values changed, we became more environmentally minded. We began to understand ecosystems and ecology. We started to want to bring large carnivores back, either actively picking up lynx from Eastern Europe and moving them back into Western Europe, or things like wolves are just perfectly capable of picking themselves up and moving uh, you know, hundreds of miles to the West. Now that's happened with wolves, but lynx have had to be reintroduced. And they're then being reintroduced into landscapes where we've given up on the intensive shepherding. And, and so places like France and Switzerland, what you'll find is that sheep killing does happen, but actually it's a very small minority of the lynx population that actually does that. Uh, the vast majority of lynx are not interested in sheep and, and their their uh, predation is very focused on the wild stuff, particularly roe deer. That's the number one prey animal uh, for, for lynx. And then you, you get this third scenario, which is uh, in Norway, as you suggested, where they've got rid of all the livestock uh, guarding measures, the intensive stuff, because they got rid of the lynx, the wolf and the bear pretty much over most of, of Norway. Uh, and yet the, the large predators are now coming back. But crucially, from Lynx's point of view, the major difference between Norway and indeed everywhere else, including the major difference between them and Sweden right next door, is that they're grazing their sheep in the woodland. There's two and a half million sheep being grazed in basically Lynx-infested ambush cover. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, and so it's not just Lynx, it, it's uh, wolves, it's bears, it's wolverines, it's foxes, it's eagles, or golden eagles are all preying on sheep uh, to varying extents. And so there's a much bigger issue uh, with lynx predation of sheep in that landscape because they're much more likely to be interfacing. When sheep are grazed in an open pasture, like they are in France or Switzerland, uh, then there's very little interaction between the two. But you put the sheep into the woodland where the lynx are. And I should say that deer densities in Norway are pretty low, far lower than we've got here in Scotland. And again, the science tells us that in Norway, where you've got high deer densities of four square kilometre or more, then even if you've got a lot of sheep and lynx together in the woods, you, you, the amount of, of sheep that are taken by lynx drops off dramatically. And I should say four per square kilometre in Scotland is a vanishingly low deer density. So that's kind of reassuring that even if we did graze uh, huge numbers of sheep in the woodlands, which we don't here in Scotland, we nevertheless have an awful lot of deer which is the thing that the, the links are really interested in. So, and of course, the, the, the detractors about the idea of links immediately make comparisons with the worst case scenario, which is Norway. So, uh, and the spotlight goes on, oh, see, this is what happens in Norway. If you release them here in Scotland, we would have the same problem. But actually, not sort of having links in the country or, or wolves means that we have no, the, 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 the apex predator, if you like, is ourselves. Uh, deer are a huge problem, aren't they? Deer will obviously destroy trees. Um, having said that, sheep, you know, obviously graze so intensively that they don't encourage biodiversity either. So we end up with a lot of national parks that are pretty to look at, but actually those rolling hills are very sort of monocultural and, you know, wildfire meadows are, are massively down since the Second World War. They seem to be a bit of a resurgence in the last... Uh, 
couple of years. But obviously, if you have sheep on those areas, they'll they'll never really develop, will they? Yeah, I mean, we, we do have a lot of sheep in the UK, for sure, far more than any other country in Europe. Um, and so, and, and that's something we do need to think about if we're going to talk about bringing back large carnivores. Uh, some parts of the UK have way more sheep than other parts of the UK. Uh, and the highlands, whilst you will certainly see sheep around, uh, have much lower densities of sheep than, for example, the southern uplands of Scotland, or indeed the mountains of Wales, uh, or some of the upland areas of northern England. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of sheep around, um, but like I say, the evidence from, from Europe would suggest that where those sheep are grazing in open habitats, the risk um, of lynx predation is pretty low. The vast majority of woodlands, for example, in Scotland don't contain sheep, and the vast majority of our sheep are not in woodlands. So yeah, there's a pretty low risk. I mean, it's certainly where I'm um, here in the Cairn Gorms, um, yes, we do have sheep in the hills. Um, they're largely being grazed in, in much of the uplands in the Cairn Gorms, really uh, as a tick management tool for the grouse shooting industry. Um, but we also do have quite a, num a, a number of deer. And even within the national park, we've got huge variation in exactly, you know, in, in densities. And some bits of the park have got very few uh, red deer, for example. Other parts have got very high densities of red deer. So uh, it's quite a, a, a variable picture. But yeah, sheep is, is uh, sheep grazing pressures can be uh, an issue in terms of preventing tree regeneration. And of course, increasingly, uh, as part of government policies, etc., to address the climate emergency and the biodiversity crisis, we're looking at woodland expansion. Uh, and uh, deer are, in some ways, uh, a pretty significant constraint. And yeah, you, you mentioned deer can be problematic. Uh, you know, and for many people, they do see deer as a problem. Uh, foresters, for example, might see deer as a problem, or, or at least some foresters. Other people uh, will value deer a great deal and see them as a valuable resource, part of their uh, their uh, their business, um, deer stocking commercially. So not everybody will be uh, have the same opinion on deer, but I think it, it is going to be increasingly challenging, I think, to expand woodland to meet the climate emergency and biodiversity crisis, or even the, the timber industry's demands. You know, we, we need a lot of wood. We're a major importer of wood from abroad. Uh, and is that right? Should we be you know, perhaps using more homegrown timber? Well, you know, deer can inflict serious uh, costs, both in terms of the, you know, the need to fence them out. That's expensive. Uh, the need to pay people to shoot them, uh, the damage to the actual timber crop itself. And perhaps having a year-round predator of deer in the woodlands might be a useful tool in the toolbox um, for woodland deer management. And indeed, obviously, having come out of Europe or the EU, um, the cap policy was very much often around. You know, subsidy was based on the number of, of the number of sheep that you had on your farm. Whereas now we're being encouraged more to go down that stewardship role of putting aside land for biodiversity for nature and things. Um, having said that as well, uh, lynx need quite a lot of space, don't they, to, to actually begin to create a viable uh, population of lynx. Because if you just put one or two lynx in, obviously you'll end up getting um, uh, too much interbreeding and so on. So is the Cairngorms big enough to, to have a, a sustainable population of lynx within it? In isolation, no, uh, they're not. I mean, despite being the UK's largest national park by quite some distance, it's twice as big as the next biggest one, which is the, the Lake District National Park. It covers 6% of Scotland, third largest national park in Europe. 
uh, it's too small to host by itself a viable lynx population. And as you say, lynx uh, require huge areas. We, we, they're a kind of order of magnitude, perhaps even two orders of magnitude bigger in the amount of land that a single lynx needs for its home range. Um, they're solitary animals, they're territorial, uh, and there's you know, gender is something that drives uh, home range size. So males have uh, even bigger territory sizes than the females, and they will exclude other males from their, their territories or home ranges. But they may well encompass two or three female home ranges within them. So the animals, like I say, are solitary, but when it comes to the breeding season, obviously, then they'll get together for a couple of days um, if they can find each other in that big landscape. The other determinant on the size of home range and therefore the density of lynx in the landscape is the availability of prey. So if you've got lynx living in an environment where there are very few deer and the very little other food around, then their home ranges can be enormous. So there was one male lynx in Norway and northern Scandinavia has got pretty low environmental productivity because it, you know, there's less solar radiation, less vegetative growth, etc. Then there are fewer deer around and one male lynx was found to be patrolling an area of over 4,000 square kilometers, uh, which I think is probably the biggest home range reported for wild felid anywhere on, it, on Earth. Uh, and that's getting onto the size of the Cairngorms National Park, one single lynx. Um, but as if you go further south into more productive areas like, say, Switzerland, then you'll find that maybe a, a male home range might be 200 square kilometres, a female's perhaps maybe 100 square kilometres, that sort of idea. But still, this is way lower density than things like foxes or wildcats or pine martens. Uh, so they really are rattling around in the, in the, in the landscape. You're never going to be chipping over uh, loads of links. So in order to have a viable population, uh, in somewhere like the Cairngorms would actually have to be part of a, a much bigger population that ranged across the, the wider Scottish Highlands. Uh, and my PhD research from a number of years ago showed that based on the availability of suitable, well-connected habitat and the prey densities within that habitat, the Highlands could probably support something like uh, 400 links. And you probably need something like 200 links for long-term viability. No, that's fascinating. And, and obviously, um, you know, going back and looking at the trees for life and so on you, you almost need to as you say connect those various areas with trees and so on to allow the links to to be able to move sort of privately around the landscape as well yeah i, I think as as we expand woodland and, it, and woodland is definitely expanding here uh, both in the cairngorms and, and nationally we're seeing more and more woodland that's undoubtedly going to make more of the landscape uh, suitable for lynx and of course the woodland deer will follow in hot on the heels of the trees of course uh, so all the ingredients are going to be there for lynx which isn't to say that you know that uh, lynx uh, tremble with fear the minute they get to the, the edge of the woodland and look out at that, that wide open landscape they, they will use uh, open landscapes as well but they just spend far less time in it they, they generally are using open landscapes as they cross between areas of woodland and so having more woodland cover, particularly in a way that strengthens a forest habitat network across the country, I think will make things uh, better and better for lynx in the long term. And like I say, there's going to be plenty of deer living in those landscapes in due course as well. Once um, once the trees have grown up and things like deer fences come down, uh, then deer will take advantage of that new habitat. And of course, we, we probably have an obligation where one of the least uh, wooded countries in Europe, I think, we may be the, the least wooded country in countries in Europe. Uh, so so there's a responsibility there. And of course, this will also help with our our carbon targets as well, won't it, as we 
we're, we're planting more trees, although obviously it takes some time for that carbon to be sequestered, doesn't it? Yeah, it's quite a complex subject, um, you know, woodland creation for carbon. And, and I think it's um, it, it's too easy to, to just kind of simplify and say, hey, planting a tree is great for carbon. Well, it depends. Uh, it depends on the tree. It depends how you grow it and, and, and exactly what type of soil it's growing on. If we're, if we're planting trees uh, on very carbon-rich soils uh, with lots of invasive ground preparation methods, you know, we're plowing things over, over, you know, excavating things with a digger and, and disturbing the soil and then whacking in this tree, which grows really quickly and, and, and in theory will sequester carbon annually, although it may well take quite a few years before you undo the damage uh, that you've done with the soil, then if you're then yeah. going to cut it down again, uh, in sort of 30 years later, and then that timber product gets used for something, well, for let's say biomass, or it gets used for a wood product that has a short um, lifespan, such as a, a pallet, then you've not necessarily captured a great deal of, of carbon. Obviously, if you're planting it in a sensitive way, or, or even better, allowing natural regeneration to ensure that nature is putting the right tree in the right place, and it's uh, allowed to grow for a long time and sequester a lot of carbon, or if it is cut down and used for timber, it's perhaps used in construction, where it's going to have a long lifespan, then yeah, it can be really great for carbon. But, you know, woodland expansion for me is not all about carbon. It's about all the other things that, that woodland gives us. Uh, and we know that certainly here in the Cairngorms, woodland is disproportionately significant for biodiversity. We know it punches well above its weight. Uh, in terms of delivering for biodiversity. And whilst we live in a climate emergency, we also have a biodiversity crisis. Um, it's yeah. also woodland is, is somewhere that we like to spend our time. It's part of the green gym. It's, it's a sort of soothing landscape for many people that we can um, recreate in. Uh, it, it contributes to the landscape. And of course, it provides us with a range of products from timbers you know, to berries to mushrooms. So there's all sorts of reasons why we need to look at woodland. It's kind of horses for courses, I suppose. But here in the Cairngorms, we're really keen to see woodland delivering on as many fronts as we can. And actually, native woodland, we're an unusual part of the UK, or certainly an unusual part of Scotland. We're the only area where the majority of the woodland resource is actually made up of native trees. Um, sixth spruce, for example, is relatively scarce uh, in this part of Scotland, certainly compared to other parts. Uh, and whilst we do have commercial forestry, um, it has, to a large extent, utilised the native Scots pine. And, it, and that um solar culture that use of scots pine for timber has actually does create quite a nature-friendly environment so it's a, a double win there uh, and we do wish to see more woodland in the national park um, so going forward the landscapes are going to be changing quite a bit and they're already quite dynamic change going on in the park as people respond to the various uh, emergencies and crises but also of course respond to the various government policies and the various financial mechanisms that can help pay for that and, and the carbon market is a, is a major driver for that it would seem these days yeah and of course when you look at sitka spruce it's it's a more sterile environment isn't it because the the native animals aren't there anymore because the native animals for sitka spruce are somewhere else and and our own animals don't seem to come in so i, I suppose that's what also where you were saying about putting the right trees in the right places as well yeah i mean sitka spruce I guess are, are not as biodiverse as some other types of woodland. Um, partly it's, it's to do with the fact that it's not a, a native tree, uh, it's native to North America. And as you suggest, a lot of the species associations it would normally have in North America won't exist here. Uh, and it, but it's also got a lot to do with the way it's grown. It's, it's very typically grown um, 
as a bit of a monoculture, very tightly packed uh, in rows, and it, it once it grows up, it can create a very dense, uh, sorry, dense and dark understory, which makes it really difficult for for plants and other species to exist. Which isn't to say it's a complete desert. There are certainly species that benefited from from Sitka spruce and that will live quite happily in there. Uh, some fairly generalist woodland species will take advantage, and we've, you know, loads of woodland bird species will live in a in amongst a Sitka spruce environment. Um, but it's also grown in such a way that it's uh, a very mixed uh, aged landscape, not necessarily within a particular stand of trees, it will be quite even aged, um, but you'll find that there's a patch or a, or a compartment of mature trees right next to an area that's been recently felled, so it's, it's quite open and grassy, then there'll be another compartment nearby which where you've got young trees where the grasses come up quite a bit, so you do find this um, spatial variation in, in, in growth stage of the, the Sitka. And that can brings about different ecological conditions that favor different species. And we know, for example, in, in young uh, Sitka spruce, uh, when the trees are still only a few meters tall, that roe deer numbers can be really high in there. And so despite being a bit of a monoculture of North American trees, uh, the deer will take advantage of it. And therefore any reintroduced lynx population will quite happily move into the North American trees uh, and take out whatever deer are there. Some of them could be Japanese, of course. Um, so that lynx are not fussy about nativeness. They don't really care if it's dripping with rich uh, fungi and lichens. Uh, they're looking for protein and they need the cover to launch a surprise attack. Um, so they're not particularly fussy in that regard. You were talking before about obviously having native trees coming in the right place. Do you think there is within this regeneration and this reforesting agenda, is it important that we we let nature take its course like has happened at NEP, or do you think we need to manage things and, and be really involved in the process? What, How does that fit in? Should there be a bit of a mixture of both, or, or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's probably horses for courses. I, I think in landscapes where there's already woodland uh, and there's quite a different, you know, there's an array of different species there, you've got a seed source, then I think we should be looking uh, to expand woodland through natural regeneration. You know, why not? Um, then it could probably be done uh, in a very competitive way, and I mean financially competitive way, from doing you know planting and, and, and fencing. Which is, you know, deer fencing is used a great deal to protect young woodland here, and that's incredibly expensive. Uh, and there are sustainability issues about using metal fencing and it getting carried in by helicopter or whatever it is. You know, um, that will all have a, a carbon footprint as well. Whereas you know, nature could be doing all this for nothing. We, we don't have to go and buy plants from a nursery and then pay somebody to go and put them in the ground. Nature does that for nothing. But of course, critically, we need to make sure that the grazing pressures um, will allow natural regeneration to happen. And of course, in some places, we've either got livestock uh, or we've got deer pressures that are too high to allow that. Um, so, I mean, I think here in the National Park, we see there's probably a, a place for different methods according to the particular local circumstances. But I think we would like to see more natural regeneration uh, taking place because I think we see lots of benefits to that. But equally, there may well be some tree species that are not well represented in the current seed source or, or tree species that don't necessarily regenerate all that well. Uh, and we might need to spread them around a little bit. We know, for example, that aspen trees are really good for biodiversity, but they tend not to, um, to set seed terribly well. And we might need to create strategic seed sources of them, plant them around in amongst some of the regenerating you know, pines and birches that we can see much more commonly. Uh, and you know, just you know, kickstart things a little bit. 
But it is worth saying that the amount of natural regeneration we've got going here in the Cairngorms is, is quite impressive to see. We've got a number of estates, particularly in the core of the National Park, that have decided to expand their remnant native woodlands by controlling deer rather than using planting and fencing. And indeed, in the year between November 2019 and November 2020, Scottish Forestry, which was formerly the Forestry Commission of Scotland, approved something like 1,400 hectares of new native woodland expansion by natural regeneration. Uh, and to put that into some context, in the UK context, that's the same amount of woodland expansion that happened uh, in 2019 by all methods, including planting for the whole of England. And this is what happened just by natural regeneration in one third of the Cairngorms National Park in a year. So there's a lot of it going on. It's really impressive to see it. And people who've been to some of these landscapes uh, recently, but hadn't been there, you know, in the intervening you know, 20 years are blown away by the massive difference uh, in, in, in what's happening to the vegetation. Um, and, I, and I think that is going to bring all sorts of uh, biodiversity benefits because, like I say, woodland punch is well above its weight. It's a minority habitat here in the Cairngorms. It's only about 15% of the park, and yet about 45% of the rare and endangered flora and fauna in the park are living in woodland. Uh, so we know it's important. And of course, it can do all sorts of fantastic things like shading our rivers and water courses and keeping the temperatures of the water down. And we know that rising water temperatures is a serious issue for a lot of the aquatic life like salmon and freshwater pearl mussels. Uh, and so having nature-based solutions to climate change, such as, uh, as woodland, uh, I think is something we need to be looking more and more at. And uh, just finally, I, I was reading with interest your latest LinkedIn post. And as we mentioned before, David's always worth following on LinkedIn or, or connecting with, particularly if you want one of his books. Uh, you, you spent uh, several hours uh, picking up plastic guards from, from trees, which are not great from a biodiversity perspective, but also just stick around for so long, don't they? They, you, they don't decompose or anything. No, they don't. And that was a byproduct of, of the, the pandemic and working from home and having to take local exercise every day for about half an hour just to keep myself uh, ticking over. Uh, I was kind of walking the same route and progressively getting more and more fed up looking at the same tree tubes, uh, essentially polluting this otherwise nice native woodland. And I think the woodland had probably been planted about 30 years ago so that the tree tubes were still evident you know they were long past the sell by date they were no longer needed these trees were bursting out of these things like you know the incredible hulk uh, you know bursting out and, and, and what a mess you know the, they were either still clinging to the trees or in some cases they were still in one uh, one piece and the, the tree had long died or, or I think most of them were actually lying in the undergrowth. You don't immediately see them until you start walking through the wood. You realize there's bits of plastic poking out everywhere. So I, I kind of dedicated about 10 to 15 minutes every day in my half an hour walk to uh, picking these things up. And I would head back home with uh, about a dozen of these things underneath my arm. And now my uh, garden shed, uh, it's pretty much the case that you open the door, they sort of start spilling out. I've got loads of them. Now, I should say I've done this with the permission of the local landowner, who I think is maybe slightly abashed that he hasn't done anything about it for the last 20 years. Uh, he is now very grateful. And we are, between us, we are investigating uh, what the options are to get these taken away and recycled, because uh, I'd be loath to see them go into a landfill site. So it's great that they're no longer in the woodland. And, and I have to say, it makes a big difference from a, a landscape point of view, a visual point of view, that, that it looks a much more natural wood now. 
fortunately, that type of tube isn't the type of plastic that disintegrates into microplastics, but there are, certainly are other tubes around that if you, when they start breaking up, they disintegrate into little bits. And that's much harder to get out of the environment because they're, they're, they're fragmenting and going into the soil. And who knows to what effect that's going to have uh, for the centuries to come. I believe the National Trusts are now creating or using biodegradable ones, so at least that seems to be a problem that uh, is being solved. But as you say, so much nicer. Don't use them in the first place, but watch out for the uh, for the grazers in the area who are obviously causing the damage in the first place. Yeah, yeah. No, we do have lots of grazers, whether it's rabbits or hares or even voles, you know, it can have an, an impact as well. But, it, but deer is the big issue and much of the, the, the woodland creation here is on a pretty large scale. And so tubes are not actually used all that often. Um, the vast majority of young planted trees in this part of the world are protected with fences rather than with tubes. But of course, that has its own visual impact and its own sustainability uh, issues, like I said. So, um, but yeah, here's hoping that some of these more biodegradable options work. And of course, just because it works in the south of England doesn't necessarily mean they work in the Cairngorms where A, the weather is pretty horrendous at certain times of year. Uh, and also the, the B, the, the trees grow much more slowly and will need the tube for longer. So we need to road test these things up here as well to see if they're just as effective as elsewhere. Brilliant. David, that's been fantastic. It's been so interesting uh, chatting to you. Uh, we will leave a link at the bottom for your um, LinkedIn or your email. And then if people do want to have a look at the book uh, and buy the book, then uh, I would thoroughly recommend it. Well, thank you very much. And thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Cheers.